Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the answer to how to use data to make decisions is, it depends. It depends for your agency, and you need to know why you've picked the right decision. Because in government, we always need to be able to trace our decisions. We also need to revisit them from time to time. The silo situation at the Pentagon could get worse before it gets better. They try to micromanage that. They tell you, do it in your own way. But sometimes doing it in your own way means it's not interoperable, and it leads to more problems. And a data deadline at OPM needs a higher level look. We think it should be a prompt deadline, um, you know, hopefully within this year. Um, and we actually elevated this to a matter for congressional consideration. It's Friday, February 11th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The new leader of the Army Venture Capital Corporation says his organization needs a funding jumpstart. Jake Chapman tells FedScoop a 50 to $100 million capital infusion could be vital to the corporation, bringing more innovative solutions to soldiers. Chapman says he wants to invest in small companies as a signal to private sector investors that the Army's serious about the technology those companies are developing. The Defense Department's Zero Trust Framework should include space, according to the Pentagon's Chief Information Officer. John Sherman says he'll engage with the Air Force and Space Force for execution. Sherman says DISA's Thunderdome and the department's move to Office 365 are components of the Pentagon's Zero Trust journey. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. IT Mod Week is less than three weeks away now. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen all over the city. Lots of government and industry speakers in attendance. You'll find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. New analysis from the Office of Management and Budget shows the federal government's improper payment rate went up last fiscal year. The rate was 7.2% in fiscal 2021. That's up from 5.6% in fiscal 2020. Mallory Bard bullman is research director at Gartner. She's former senior analyst at the Government Accountability Office. Mallory, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. Whenever I see improper payment numbers, the question that I always ask people when we talk about improper payments is, is there a level at which you just give up and you decide it costs more to pursue that money? The broader question of data then, Mallory, how do you know when your data is good enough? At what point do you decide we're going to pursue action, even if we know our data is not perfect? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. And, um, you know, to take a step back, I think you know this, that I within Gartner, I, I work with finance processes. So I spend my day talking to controllers. And one of the things we talk about all the time is the accounting close. So we talk about the importance of precision of data. And one thing that we have found in our research is something that's that's sort of surprising um, as we as we think of accounting is that we have driven our expectations of precision up so high to the point that it's actually getting us in trouble. It's actually creating some risks. And, you know, if you think about it from a very practical standpoint, if you have a team in the office and they're working to get every number right, they're working into the night, they're, you know, going as fast as they can, and they're bound to make some errors. Um, and so what we what we found as we looked at these scenarios was that our need for precision 
isn't actually getting us what we want. It's actually getting us into some trouble. And so we need to make some decisions around what we call materiality, sort of the information that actually makes a difference for our decisions versus the information that doesn't make a, a difference for our decisions. What What's the solution to that risk? I'll tell you what people typically do and, and give you the spoiler that what t- people typically do is is not the answer. What people <laughs> typically do was they'll have a series of conversations around, well, what matters to you? What matters to you? And, and you know, we all work within large agencies and something matters to someone everywhere. Um, but it doesn't mean that you would make a different decision with the information. And so what we found is that the, the companies that did this well um, got to it through some analysis. They they looked at whatever the information is and they established sort of an upper threshold. What's a number over which no matter what we know it's going to be material? We, you know, if if this information got on the secretary's desk or it ended up in the Washington Post, us not knowing about it would really be a problem. And there's probably a bottom number under which no matter what, it's not going to make a difference. You know, and that depends on the size of the company. It depends on the size of the agency. It depends on the type of transaction. So you've then established your top and bottom limit. You then select a couple of sort of limits within it. And you look back at the past quarter and you say, if we didn't process the information under this number, what would we have missed? What, you know, what details would we not have had and would we arrive at a different decision? And, you know, large Fortune 500 companies do this, large federal agencies do this. And what it does is it gives you a, you know, a defensible reason why you chose to look at estimates under a certain number instead of the precise number. And, um, everybody tends to find with this kind of analysis that there's, you know, some kind of sweet spot. There's a point at which, you know what, we really wouldn't have arrived at a different decision. Um, and you need to update it from time to time. But it's it's really a very simple analysis that can help convince your stakeholders that we don't need the level of precision that we need. The difference that I hear in the approach that you're taking versus the approach that you said most organizations take and doesn't work is if I was going to uh, synopsize the a common approach, it would be a meeting where people are around the, the boardroom table or on a Zoom now, I guess. And the conversation would revolve around how are we going to get better? And I have get better in air quotes. I mean, that's that sounds like the kind of approach versus what you're proposing, which is very data driven in and of itself to examine the data and examine the process. Am I on the right track? You're exactly on the right track. And, and, you know, we tend to find in situations where folks do sort of that around the Zoom approach where, you know, they're trying to agree to something that everybody can agree to, they tend to set the number too low because, again, somebody's going to want something just because it's the way they've they've done it. And um, this more analytical approach also is, is much more defensible that, you know, when you get to, you know, OMB compliance, when you get to GAO compliance, inspector general compliance, these are the types of documents, the types of analyses that you can provide and show them that, 
hey, we really made a smart decision here. We looked at, you know, the past quarter's worth of information and and we frankly would not have arrived at a different decision. Uh, My other takeaway is that regarding the question, what's the right number or what's the right threshold? The answer is it depends. And it depends on what the organization requires, what the organization's mission is and so on. Is that also correct? That's exactly right. And, And the answer is, It depends for your agency and you need to know why you've picked the right decision, because in government, we always need to be able to trace our decisions. We also need to revisit them from time to time. The right answer right now won't necessarily be the same right answer in another two years. So as we build into our our processes, we can establish sort of the right number for right now and then a plan to revisit it again in a couple of years. What's that plan look like to revisit in a couple of years? Is it the same plan that you undertook now that you do at two years in the future? Or does it also depend on potential changes in the organization in the interim time or other factors? I mean, I think you can build in one that's sort of calendar based. We can say, you know, this time next year, let's look at it. But also if there's significant changes to the agency, you know, it happens irregularly. But if, you know, if the agency expands or contracts in in a meaningful way, if the programs change in a meaningful way, you know, if if any of the factors that change how you decide something changes, it's probably time to revisit the information you have. Mallory Barg-Bowman, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about improper payments and data in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A new 5G network could enable smart warehouses for the Navy. It's trying the concept at its 120,000-square-foot warehouse at Naval Base Coronado in San Diego. Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, U.S. Navy retired, is former Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Navy, former Director of Current Operations at U.S. Cyber Command. She's author of Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader. Donnell, welcome. It's great to have you on the program again. What do you see when you look at something like that 5G product as the challenges and benefits, obviously, of introducing cutting-edge technology in the military? Welcome, Danelle. Hey, thanks, Francis. Great to be back on the show. Appreciate it. Um, Yeah, that was an experiment that started under an OSD program where they were testing 5G capabilities because we know the military is going to need to employ those along with future technologies like light fidelity where you don't have an RF footprint. So um, that's one of the technologies that was tested. And it kind of really speaks to how the Department of Defense is looking to rapidly prototype uh, emerging technologies um, under some acquisition authorities that they have now um, to get to uh, capability to the fleet or to the force faster, um, how to integrate that faster. And we've been um, kind of hampered by acquisition rules that weren't all that helpful. They were built in the industrial age. But over the last 10, 15 years, they've really been trying to modernize those and they realize that that's part of the problem and they've really been working to fix those. What do you see on the landscape that the acquisition changes have fomented? What are services doing now that maybe they couldn't have under the rules that have changed? Yeah, so um, so a couple of things. We'll, we'll talk about Navy, Special Forces, and Army a little bit because they're kind of all doing Air Force is doing great stuff too, but I'll just talk about the first three there. So the Navy has um, really kind of jumped all in with this. And um, through uh, ONI, the, uh, or ONI, ONI and ONR, the research organizations, they have a rapid innovation fund that's supported by OSD. It actually works with small businesses to get 
prototypes fielded quickly and tested. And then you have commands like uh, Naval uh, Warfare Command at Nywick Land, where they have a whole uh, S&T department that does rat- rapid prototyping and experimentation. They actually stood up in 2020. They had an exercise at Camp Lejeune that lasted 10 days, had 50 industry partners come in, um, and through their advanced uh, naval technology experimentations that they do, they're testing everything from AI to autonomous vehicles like the Sea Hunter and the uh, vessels that they use, the Mantis T-12, the unmanned surface vehicle they test out in Bahrain, Fifth Fleet, with local um, GCC countries, too. And so um, they're looking at other things like uh, uh, naval comms, EW Spectrum, DevSecOps. And so they've really gone all in. On the Army side, Francis, they've got, you know, obviously their project convergence. And so um, like the Navy's was Project Over, uh, Overmatch, right? That's their element of the JADC2, the Joint All Domain Command and Control. And then the Army has Project uh, Convergence, and they're looking at sensors and protection like EW, comms, assured PNT, cloud computing, robotics, AI. And they actually did a testing, uh, their second big exercise at Yuma Proving Ground in November, which was really interesting because they had 110 uh, technologies tested. For a lot of more sensors to shooters, you know, and they did 19 shooters, 15 sensors. And that was a follow-on of a, an exam of a test they had done in 2020 where they had really upgraded networks, used some AI and some C2 tools to cut that shooter to sensor time from 20 minutes to 20 seconds. So they've really been focusing. And what's interesting about the Army experiments is that they're bringing in joint partners. So they had the Air Force, the Navy, the Space Force, and the Marine Corps. And seven of the scenarios they did, they used three of them joint, which is really important because with the JADC2, everybody's kind of been doing their own stovepipey kind of things. You know, like we've been doing Project Overmatch in Navy, Army's doing Convergence, Air Force is doing Advanced Battle Management Systems, but they're never the twain are meeting, even as hard as joint staff is pushing that. So mm-hmm. this was really good that the Army included everybody else in their exercises. And then if we talk Special Forces real quick, I'll just talk a bit about what they're doing. They're using, they have unique acquisition authorities where they can buy stuff even faster. And so they have 75 programs and 59 of those rapidly prototyping um, with um, demonstrating capabilities like uh, they have a combat diving program, which is a free diver heating and cooling system kind of circulates the water better um, through tubes, the vest and the suit so that you can do untethered long exposure um, operations. And so they're testing things like that that are real uh, person focused. Before we went on the air, you pointed me to the new software strategy, and we talked about it when it first came out on this program, Danelle. How does that integrate into what you're talking about here? What's the intersection between that strategy and some of these acquisition vehicles that are allowing the services to get to this technology faster? Yeah, so interesting and good point. Um, the original software modernization uh, policy came out a year and a half ago or so, and they just released the newest one on February 1st, 2022, uh, came out from the DepSecDef. And it's really software and the ability to securely and rapidly des- deliver that resilient software for competitive advantage in future conflicts. And so when you look at that, I mean, software permeates every technology that's out there, whether it's an unmanned vehicle, you know, AI, ML, the cloud, I mean, the software to, to move and do something with that information is key. And so what you've seen in this new policy is a real focus on that DevSecOps environment. Now, each of these services has their own 
DevSecOps environment. The Navy has the overmatched software armory, which has actually been in place for five years now, doing that rapid and agile development with the security baked in. The Air Force has Platform One and Cloud One, you know, um, and they've been working on that. And the DOD actually has their own enterprise DevSecOps uh, uh, group. They call it the DSOP, which provides advice to everybody else. But what's important about the... Um, the policy that came out is it or the strategy it's really a strategy um it talks about the process technology policy and workforce because it's not just about developing the software faster and more secure it's how do you then change those war fighting processes to leverage it and how do you integrate all those platforms like you know you were talking about what is the biggest thing that you see in that software modernization strategy, Danelle, that could potentially change the way the department does business? Because if you think through people process technology, we've been on a trajectory of change um, that you alluded to earlier in this conversation. But I wonder what really ramps that up, what really turbocharges that, if, if, you, if you see anything there that does so. Well, interestingly enough, I mean, you know, the services are tasked under their Title Ten authorities to equip and provide capability to the joint force, right? And everybody does that. You know, we don't, they try to micromanage that. They tell you, do it in your own way. But sometimes doing it in your own way means it's not interoperable and it leads to more problems. And so it's interesting how they've changed some of the ways they're looking at, you know, authorization to spend on things like the cloud and DevSecOps and what are you doing in those areas, each of the services. So it's implementing, um, you know, it's, it's this new policy is really looking to have DOD CIO, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, and the Undersecretary of Defense for R&D to kind of take the lead in corralling these efforts to make sure they will be interoperable and they will support the JADC2 and all the things we want to do with you know, AI and ML in the future. And so they're using their software modernization senior steering group to sort of be the group to corral these efforts. Now it's difficult and there is some budgetary approvals that DOD CIO has now that they didn't have before, but still the services equip the forces and provide them. So there's still going to be a challenge there, a little bit of friction, but I think the more we can standardize among the services and get exercises like the Air Army did so that each of the services is thinking, hey, when I do an exercise here, let me invite these other folks along. Danelle, I always understand this stuff better after you explain it than I did before we started. I appreciate you coming on today, my friend. Oh, thanks. That's very kind of you. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you again. You can find a link to the software modernization strategy in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Nine agencies have almost all their employees working remotely as a result of the pandemic, but those agencies will need more data and better data to make decisions about remote work post-pandemic. Alyssa Siz is Acting Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Alyssa, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. It was striking, but maybe not surprising that so many agencies had so many people working remotely. What did you look at as you went back uh, as a result of the CARES Act to examine exactly who did what and how they did it at the beginning and into the pandemic uh, regarding remote work. Welcome. Right. Thanks for having me, Francis. So what we wanted to do with this report is really kind of give a landscape across the federal government of what was going on with telework during the early months of the pandemic. So we looked from April through September 2020, when agencies really had to make that sudden pivot um, and maintain their operations, but keep their employees safe at the same time. So no surprises, right? Uh, we found across 24 major federal agencies that we looked at, 
All of them substantially increased telework uh, during those months of the pandemic. Um, in many of the agencies, half of those agencies, 80% of workforce hours for their civilian workforces were telework hours uh, during at least a quarter of that time period. So no surprises, but it did just underscore that agencies had to make this quick shift to uh, telework to ensure safety and continuity of operations. That pivot is what really struck me. You write, uh, pre-pandemic, at nearly all 24 agencies, less than a quarter of teleworking employees did so full-time. During the pandemic, 14 agencies had at least a quarter of teleworking employees doing so full-time. What did you learn, if anything, from the data about what that shift meant for how these workforces were structured, how the uh, agencies were able to move forward, or was the scope of your work just who was doing what and where they were doing it? Right. We also talked to agencies and looked at how difficult or easy was this for agencies to move to a maximum telework posture in many cases. For some agencies who were used to having employees telework pre-pandemic, such as National Science Foundation, they did not have you know, a lot of challenges making this uh, quick shift. Other agencies like the Department of Defense, where a lot of the employees could not or did not telework pre pre-pandemic, they encountered quite a few issues initially with network, you know, bandwidth, capacity issues. Some of their employees did classified work, of course, and could not work at home. And that was the case for a number of employees across these agencies, too. Um, agencies also, we found, had to kind of retool processes. So uh, there were challenges with onboarding new employees, right? So agencies had to come up with virtual trainings and different ways to bring new employees on board during the pandemic. And most of them worked through those issues over time, but it was challenging during those early days of the pandemic for many of them. When you report on these challenges in this work, uh, Alyssa, what strikes me is that the agencies for all of, and this is my observation, not yours to be clear, but it, it strikes me that these organizations who take a lot of flack in many cases for being behind the private sector for this, that, or the other reason did the same things when I read your examples of agency responses as I saw uh, reports that private sector companies did um, to address the challenge that you reported on employee engagement work-life balance. You write that uh, one example, agencies suspended core work hours, encouraged flexibility with employee work schedules. Uh, you mentioned the bandwidth issue a moment ago. So these these responses pivoted, it seems to me, from from what I see in your work, pretty much as quickly as they needed to. It doesn't sound like there was a lot of latency in the agencies coming up with these plans to respond to the needs of their workforces, but also the needs of meeting the missions. Am I reading that right? I think that's exactly right, Francis. The, it did show that the federal government can move quickly when it needed to, and it did underscore that the agencies really had the employee well-being at the forefront, as well as trying to meet their agency missions too. So, you know, agencies recognized, like all of us, you know, during those early days of the pandemic, we were making a big shift. Um, suddenly, many employees, you know, were home with their children, right, without childcare, um, or home dealing with elderly parents 
parents with no no uh, extra help there too, and balancing a lot of things that life was throwing at them, not to mention all of the COVID issues that were going on, particularly in the early days of the pandemic, and trying to do their jobs too. So they did offer a number of flexibilities, some of them allowing them to work on weekends, allowing them to expand core hours so they could work in the evenings and try to, you know, fulfill those other home responsibilities while also doing their their jobs. Now, there were agencies that experienced challenges with this, and we do report on some of those uh, in the report, um, but agencies were, you know, trying to take steps to kind of make this balance, right, of have, having their employees safely work at home, but also recognizing that there was a lot on their plate for their employees as well. Wouldn't be a GAO report, Alyssa, if there wasn't some uh, challenge found that needs improvement to go with the good news. The good news is the agency response uh, sounds like it was it was fairly robust and fairly flexible. The challenge that I see is recommendations that you and your colleagues made to OPM in 2016 didn't really seem to happen, and that resulted in challenges as you tried to get this data originally from where you thought the data was going to be at the Office of Personnel Management turned out not to be there. What did that look like, and what did you have to do as a result of that, Alyssa? Right. So we've been on record for several years telling the Office of Personnel Management or OPM that it needed to take steps to improve the reliability of telework data that it was reporting to Congress about how federal agencies were teleworking. So ideally for this review, we would simply have to go to OPM and get data for all of the agencies across the federal government on how how much their employees were teleworking. Unfortunately, because of significant data reliability issues with the data that OPM collected, we were unable to do that for this report. The data were not reliable. So our team did go out to all 24 agencies individually. And as you can imagine, all of the agencies have their own systems and processes um, for collecting this data. And uh, it was a very laborious process to collect this data, to go back, to ask questions about some inconsistencies, to get complete information. And in this report, as you'll notice, we report broad categories of telework. We do not report precise numbers for agencies. And that's because OPM's data, which would have been the best source of data, we were not able to use for this report. Is that the problem for OPM's data too, Alyssa? Is that all of this data coming in from these 24 agencies is look looks different is formatted differently is uh the hygiene has been done differently that reliability may be different is that opm's problem too the same thing that you found it is in a way, but OPM does have its payroll database, which it does house telework information for federal employees across the government as well. And that is a potentially good source for, for OPM with consistent fields that it could use to report on telework data. Unfortunately, there are a number of data reliability issues uh, with that database. Um, and again, we made recommendations several years ago that OPM take steps to improve the reliability of that data. 
Unfortunately, while they did do some things, they did implement one of four recommendations we made several years ago. There are three additional recommendations that need attention there to make sure that data are reliable enough. And then that would be a good source for OPM to collect uh, consistent data and provide that to Congress. And it would it would kind of cut out this step of all of the agencies, you know, having to go to each agency with their own systems. Mm-hmm. The primary recommendation that you make here is for OPM to set a deadline to develop the implementation plan to meet those other three recommendations that you've made. Do you have an opinion or a thought about what that deadline should be or just the fact that there should be some goal toward which OPM is moving, Alyssa? Right. So we, we think it should be a prompt deadline, uh, you know, hopefully within this year. Um, and we actually elevated this to a matter for congressional consideration because we've been on record with these recommendations for several years. One of them is to monitor error reports out of OPM's database. That's a priority recommendation for us. And we've sent that in a letter to the OPM director um, for the last several years. So at this point, we've elevated this to Congress and we are hopeful that Congress will require OPM to do this in an expedient manner, hopefully by the end of the year. This work says the CARES Act includes a provision for GAO to report on ongoing COVID-19 monitoring and oversight effects uh, uh, efforts. Does that mean that this work will continue and that you'll have further updates or is this piece of it complete as we see it right now, Alyssa? Right. This work is complete on what happened during the pandemic. I mean, we will continue to watch, you know, the future of the federal workforce, particularly as agencies are kind of rethinking what their postures will look like in a post-pandemic world. I think there are a lot of lessons learned um, and potential benefits that have come out of this increased telework. And so now we're seeing OPM encouraging agencies to re-examine their telework policies to consider remote work for a portion of their workforces. So I think there's going to be a lot of change over the next few years, and that's exciting for the federal workforce. Um, You know, we underscore that you need good data and information, um, and that's a basis for any informed decision-making going forward. But um, we will definitely be um, monitoring and watching these issues going forward, too. Alyssa Sizz of the Government Accountability Office, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Francis. You can read Alyssa's work on telework in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated it on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helped me put the show together. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast, back on Monday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.